You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Portraits of Blue and Gray, the Biographical Civil War Podcast, Episode 3, Stonewall Jackson, Part 1. Imagine you're a student at the Virginia Military Institute, you know, VMI, in the 1850s. You're probably from Virginia or a nearby state, but not necessarily. You're from a good family, maybe not upper-upper crust, but comfortable. You're at VMI more for the education and the networking than out of any plan for a military career. After all, it is a good school. You get a similar curriculum to what you would expect from a traditional university with the military training thrown in as gravy. VMI is in Lexington, Virginia, a fairly small town in the southern part of the Shenandoah Valley. Between VMI and Washington College, social life in Lexington is pretty well focused around the schools. The professors at both institutions are well-known around town, and most are active in the community. So, as a VMI cadet, you would know your professors, and there are only a few of them, pretty well, both in and out of school. Now, most of the VMI professors are basically what you would expect. Military officers or former officers... Uh, adapted to a small-town campus setting. But you have one professor that just really seems to stick out. He teaches natural and experimental philosophy, which is probably the hardest course in school. It's a combination of physics, astronomy, optics, magnetics, mechanics, uh, along with some other pretty advanced scientific disciplines. So it's heady stuff. And you've done fairly well at school. You're not at the top of the class, but the top half anyway. But you damn near failed natural philosophy. And not because you're not smart, you are. But because the professor, Major Tom Jackson, doesn't have a clue how to teach. He just memorizes the textbook and recites it from memory. If a student asks a question, he rereads the text again from memory. If you still don't understand, he kicks you out of class for the day. Basically, No discussion of the material is permitted. And for some reason, he holds all of his review sessions in the dark. Now, that's not to say that he's overly harsh or anything like that. In fact, he has a reputation for being almost excessively polite and maybe even a little bit of a a pushover in the classroom. Some of the less dignified cadets will regularly play pranks on him and call him Tom Fool. The more respectable cadets, like you... Just call him Old Tom. But he's not just a lousy teacher. He's also just a genuinely strange guy. He wears the same old hat and clothes almost every day. He once stayed all night on campus, sitting on the same stool, because the superintendent forgot to dismiss him. He takes everything hyper-literally, answering anyone who begins or ends a sentence with, you know, by saying, I do not know. 
And he pretty much only eats stale cornbread and cold water, uh, maybe unseasoned meat once or twice a month. He says eating pepper makes him lose the use of his left leg, and he packs his lunch for every social dinner, regardless of the occasion. And there's always some new health fad that he's into, like these weird leaping and swinging exercises that he's always doing. He randomly stands up at unusual times, but the reason he does it is because he says it helps his alimentary canal stay straight. Oh, and boy, oh boy, is this guy religious. I mean, you grew up going to church every Sunday like everyone else, but old Tom's piety puts yours to shame. He practically lives at church, and he has a way of turning every conversation back to God. The funny thing is, though, as much as this guy loves to go to church, he always falls asleep at the service, every Sunday, like clockwork, and he refuses to try to hide it. Another churchgoer suggested that he try slouching or leaning to the side to make his nodding off and snoring less obvious. Old Tom replied, I will do nothing to superinduce sleep by putting myself at ease or making myself more comfortable. If, however, in spite of my resistance, I yield to my infirmity, then I deserve to be laughed at and accept as punishment the mortification I feel. Old Tom is one of, if not the, worst public speakers that you have ever seen. But he insists on leading prayer at church services, and he even joined the Lexington Debate Club. Although, the more you think about that, the more admirable it seems. He knows that he has a weakness and he's trying to improve. It's really just a shame that he can't do it without having the local paper print stories about how awkward of a speaker he is. You heard that an alumni group tried to get old Tom fired not too long ago for, they said, not being a good reflection on VMI. But the board or the superintendent or somebody went to bat for him and he kept his job. Uh, Apparently, he was some kind of war hero in Mexico, and he had a reputation in the army for being absolutely fearless. And that's what you heard anyway. But frankly, it's a little hard to believe. I mean, old Tom, he's a nice enough guy, but he's just not what you think of when you think of a soldier. He doesn't carry himself like a military man. But uh, you don't have any reason to doubt the stories about his service in Mexico. And you can tell he really knows what he's doing with artillery. Oh, yeah, besides teaching natural philosophy, he also teaches artillery drill. And that is something that he he actually is exceptionally good at. So anyway, you graduate from VMI after a few years, and then you head back to your hometown, probably getting ready to take over the family farm or business. Life goes on, and you don't think about old Tom Jackson for a few years. Then in 1861, all hell breaks loose. The governor of Virginia calls on all VMI graduates to come to Richmond to serve as officers in the Virginia militia soon to join the Confederate Army. There's a real shortage of anyone with any military training, what with the United States Army having been so small, and so military school grads are at a premium. You report, and you receive a commission as a lieutenant, or maybe as a major, under General Joe Johnston. Things start happening really fast, and before you know it, you're right in the thick of things at Bull Run. It's all kind of a blur, but after the battle, people are talking about how The whole army was almost completely flanked, except that a relatively small force, basically three brigades with some cavalry help, saved the flank on Matthew Hill until the army could get turned around. Bernard B. and Shanks Evans were in the middle of the fighting from the get-go, 
Apparently, they fought desperately, and they held out for a couple hours, but they were about to give up when help arrived in the form of a brigade of Virginians from the Shenandoah Valley under General Thomas Jackson. Jackson calmed everyone down, and he held down the fort until Beauregard could get there. Then, the counterattack that he ordered eventually led to the come-from-behind victory. General Thomas Jackson. Now, that couldn't be old Tom, could it? Things were pretty quiet for a while after Manassas. Everyone thought the Yankees were already whipped, but they didn't see it that way. As 1862 began, the Bluecoats were taking forts along the Carolina and Georgia coasts, and then New Orleans fell. George McClellan's Army of the Potomac, much larger, better equipped, and more disciplined than the army that fought under Irving McDowell at Manassas, was taking advantage of the Union naval superiority by moving the attack on Richmond further down the coast, creeping up the Virginia Peninsula. Again and again, the Confederate army that you were with had to pull back, closer and closer to Richmond, until you could hear the church bells in the capital. So things were looking pretty bleak. You didn't say anything out loud, but you were beginning to wonder if General Johnston was going to give up Richmond to McClellan without a fight. But then, stories started coming in from out west, in the Shenandoah Valley. A small Confederate army was having some success out there, even though they seemed to be hopelessly outnumbered. And according to what you are hearing, they, they were actually having a lot of success, confusing the Yankees with deceptive mobility and repeatedly catching them unprepared. And they weren't just winning battles, they were capturing a ton of provisions and supplies, thousands of small arms, and even quite a few artillery pieces. And those spoils were a big deal, too, because war material was in short supply in the South. The Yankees had more than they needed, but the rebels could barely keep every soldier fed and armed. The stories coming in from the valley brightened everyone's spirits, and the South had a new hero in the brilliant commander who was engineering all the victories. The Richmond paper said, He wears the sword of the Lord of Gideon, chewing up Yankees by the thousands as if they were so many grains of parched popcorn. Now, one of the soldiers stationed within the Richmond defenses in your brigade vividly described the effect the news had on morale. He said, In our sultry, squalid camps along the Chickahominy, the news had reached us of the brilliant Valley Campaign, and in the midst of destitution and depression and doubt, with the enemy at the very gates of the capital, it read like a fairy tale. With feverish interest, we devoured the accounts of rapid marches, of sudden appearances where least expected, which had frustrated every combination of the enemy. And the man behind this incredible valley campaign, the one wearing the sword of the Lord of Gideon, was named Jackson, Thomas J. Jackson. Now, by that time, you knew for certain that the General Jackson from Manassas, and now the Shenandoah Valley, was, in fact, old Tom, your bumbling natural philosophy professor from VMI. But he wasn't exactly the same man, though. For one thing, no one was calling him old Tom anymore, and they sure as hell weren't calling him Tom Fool. The quiet eccentricity had been replaced by an aura of military invincibility that inspired and encouraged Southerners while frightening and intimidating Yankees. No, he really wasn't old Tom the professor anymore at all. He had transformed into the Confederacy's first great military hero. He had become General Stonewall Jackson.
Thanks for listening to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part one of our look at the life of the legendary Stonewall Jackson. Before we get going, though, I have to correct not one, but two errors that I made in our last show, which was part four of our U.S. Grant series. First, when discussing the Lincoln assassination, I said that the line in the play that was supposed to get everyone in the theater laughing was solidologizing old Bantrap. Now, come to realize the line was sockdologizing old Bantrap. Uh, solidologizing apparently isn't a word. I'll have to chalk that one up to misreading my own notes. And second, in discussing the stock market collapse during Grant's second term, I said the day of the drop became known as Black Friday, like the Cypress Hill album. Uh, that album was in fact called Black Sunday. Uh, hopefully that will teach me not to make pop culture references uh, without confirming that I at least get the names right first. So with that said, I've been really looking forward to our look at Stonewall Jackson, and hopefully you have been too. So I'll keep the introduction short. You can and please do email the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, and that's gray with an E. And if you enjoy and want to support the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or whichever other app you use. And I think that's enough intro. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Sometime around 1755, an Ulster Scot by the name of John Jackson was arrested and convicted of larceny. As punishment, he was sentenced to live in Maryland for seven years, which seems cruel and unusual, but those were the times. And my apologies to any Maryland listeners. No, he was sentenced to go to Maryland, which was then, of course, still a British colony, to work as an indentured servant for seven years to pay his debt to society. On the voyage, he met Elizabeth Cummins, who had also been sentenced to indentured servitude in Maryland for a larceny conviction. And the two hit it off and were soon married. They must have liked it on this side of the pond, or perhaps they were unable to secure passage back to Britain, because after the seven years was up, they decided to stick around. Slowly, they moved west into Virginia in search of land, and finally settled in the mountainous area now known as Upshur County, West Virginia, near the town of Buckhannon, eventually acquiring some 3,000 acres. When the colonies declared their independence in 1776, John Jackson, along with his two sons, enlisted in the Continental Army, working his way up the ranks to captain. John's second son, Edward, fathered Jonathan Jackson in 1790, and Jonathan and his wife had four children, the third of which was born January 21, 1824, in Clarksburg, a son they named Thomas Jonathan Jackson. Jonathan Jackson was an attorney, but he wasn't a very successful one. He had serious problems with debt until he died of typhoid in 1826, which was a little too early for him to have uh, much of an impact on two-year-old Thomas. When Jonathan died, he left Thomas's mother, Julia, with three kids. Uh, one of the children had also died of typhoid, and all the family debt. She refused charity, instead selling off what possessions the family had to pay off her deceased husband's debt. Julia remarried in 1830 to another attorney by the name of Blake Woodson. But in 1831, Julia died in childbirth, leaving Thomas as an orphan a sadly common occurrence in the early 19th century. Thomas and his sister, Laura, were sent to live with their 29-year-old uncle, Cummins, at Jackson's Mill in Lewis County, Virginia, again, now West Virginia. Cummins was a successful local businessman, 
And he lived on his sprawling farm with his five brothers and their stepmother. By Lewis County standards, the family was wealthy. Uh, Along with all the land, they owned grain and sawmills and blacksmith and carpentry shops. Thomas and Laura were well taken care of and loved by their uncle and step-grandmother. Uncle Cummins expected Thomas to work on the farm, chopping wood, tending sheep, and helping with the grain harvests. But he also allowed his nephew plenty of free-range playtime, which Thomas used to explore the area with Laura. The siblings were very close, uh, having bonded over their shared orphanhood. They remained in constant contact throughout their lives, and Jackson would regularly travel to visit Laura and her family. The letters that they exchanged show an almost silly side of Jackson that he only showed to a select few people during his life. Now, sadly, many years later, they would become estranged. Um, Laura remained passionately pro-Union when the Civil War broke out, uh, which was fairly common in northwestern Virginia. And she just couldn't accept what she viewed as her brother's betrayal of the country. But turning back for now to 1834, Thomas and Laura's childhoods were again shaken up by the death of the matron of the Lewis County farm, uh, Cummins' stepmother. The extended family thought that it would be improper for the two kids to live on a farm with six bachelor uncles and no female presence, so they were separated and sent to live with other family members. Thomas went to stay with his aunt on his father's side, Polly Brake, and her husband Isaac on a farm in Harrison County near Clarksburg. Now, Thomas was miserable during his stay with the Brakes. Not only was he separated from his best friend Laura and his uncle Cummins, who had been a kind and supportive male role model, but Isaac Brake was verbally and possibly physically abusive with 11-year-old Thomas. So after about a year, he couldn't handle it anymore, and he ran away. His first stop was in nearby Clarksburg, where another one of his aunts tried to convince him to return to the break home. But Thomas refused. She remembered him saying, Maybe I ought to, ma'am, but I am not going to. Instead, he walked 18 miles through the wooded mountains back to Jackson's Mill, where he was welcomed back in by his Uncle Cummins. Presumably, on account of Thomas's reports of the treatment he had received, um, this time around, Cummins resisted the family's objections to the child being raised with no female influence. Thomas had a sort of Huck Finn adolescence at Jackson's Mill. There were numerous adventures. He would often go exploring for days at a time. But Cummins made sure that Thomas learned the importance of hard work. Cummins Farm wasn't a plantation by any stretch of the imagination, but there were a few slaves. By all accounts, young Thomas got along well with the servants, and they seemed to have liked one another. Thomas reportedly struck a bargain with one man to give him reading lessons in exchange for wood knots, which Jackson used for light to read by at night. Of course, Thomas was breaking Virginia law by teaching a slave to read, but it seems as though they kept the arrangement to themselves until well after the deed had been done. After learning to read at Thomas's instruction, the slave escaped to Pennsylvania on the Underground Railroad. As a child, Thomas had only a little access to formal schooling, so most of his education came from books. He read everything he could get his hands on, which, uh, unfortunately for him, was not very much in Lewis County in the 1830s. Eventually, though, he had self-educated enough that he got a job teaching 11- and 12-year-olds when he was 15. And then at the age of 18, in the spring of 1842, Thomas submitted an application to West Point 
through Representative Samuel Hayes. Now, there were many more applicants than appointments, so Hayes' office organized an examination to determine which applicant was most qualified. Sadly for Jackson, the exam was math-heavy, and he had little to no math background. So Thomas didn't get the appointment, but the boy who did washed out of West Point on the first day. Now, military academies are not for everyone, so to this day, it isn't uncommon for a once-eager candidate to end his or her service academy career within the first couple days upon realizing just what a military education entails. When Jackson heard about the newly opened slot, he gathered up as many recommendations as he could cobble together for another shot with Representative Hayes. He wrote to one prominent local attorney whose endorsement he sought, quote, I know that I shall have the application necessary to succeed. I hope that I have the capacity. At least I am determined to try, and I wish you to help me to do this. One of the recommendations that Jackson supplied to Hayes gives you an idea of how the small Lewis County community viewed 18-year-old Thomas Jackson. The recommendation read, quote, An orphan in early age, he has inspired by his conduct, confidence in his rectitude, and has won the acclaim of the community. Descended from a family which has discovered much of the country, and with nothing but his individual exertions to advance him in life, we consider him as having a claim upon the country as great as that of any other young man. Unquote. So, with quite a few recommendations along these lines in hand, Jackson traveled to Washington to reapply with Hayes in person. And keep in mind, too, Lewis County is a lot further from Washington than, say, Alexandria or even Richmond. This is something like a 250-mile trip one way that we're talking about. And Hayes was suitably impressed, and he granted the appointment to Jackson. But Jackson still had to pass the difficult and highly stressful West Point entrance exams to get in. The exams weren't just like SATs. Not that those aren't stressful enough. Uh, The candidates took their exams standing up in front of the examiners and the other examinees, either answering verbally or working out math problems on the blackboard. Thomas had arranged in advance for some tutoring, primarily in math and grammar, but despite his obvious dedication, he was still woefully unprepared compared to most other examinees. One fellow test taker described Jackson as he worked on a math problem at a chalkboard in full view of the examiners and other potential new cadets. Quote, His whole soul was bent on passing. When he went to the blackboard, the perspiration was streaming down his face, and during the whole examination, his anxiety was painful to witness. Unquote. Jackson received the absolute lowest possible score that would still get him into West Point. And he may even have received a little bit of a bump just by impressing the examiners with his determination, if not his education. Most of the other West Point cadets were from more polished social backgrounds and had more schooling than Jackson, being from the mountains as he was. West Point was considered the top engineering school in the country, and the curriculum was predictably math-intensive, with comparatively little actual military training, which did not favor Jackson. Exams were held twice a year, and they were all-or-nothing affairs. Any cadet who failed an exam was sent packing. No second chances. A fate that many, if not most, classmates predicted for Jackson. His career at West Point was defined by the intense studying necessary for him to keep up with his better-prepared classmates. He stayed up late nearly every night, reading by firelight, 
skipped nearly all non-academic activities to allow for more study time, and received tutoring from a friendly student by the name of Chase Whiting, who was ranked at the top of the class two years ahead of Jackson's. His classmates described him as shy and unsocial, with only a few friends. When called upon to speak in class, he lacked confidence and said as little as possible. A classmate from Pennsylvania named John Gibbon, who would go on to be a Union brigadier, described Jackson's performance in the classroom. He said, quote, Efforts at the blackboard were sometimes painful to watch. No matter what proposition was assigned to recite on, he would hang to it like a bulldog. And in his mental efforts to overcome the difficulty, great drops of perspiration would fall from his face, even in the coldest weather. But although he had no social life to speak of, Jackson was very fond of life at West Point, despite, or perhaps because of, the strict discipline expected of the students. When later asked whether, during his West Point career, he had ever violated any school rules, Jackson replied, Yes, I remember one overt act, but it was the only one in which I consciously did what I knew to be wrong. I stepped behind a tree to conceal myself from an officer, because I was beyond bounds without a permit. Unquote. Along with his quietness, what stuck out most to Jackson's classmates was his sometimes odd behavior. One fellow cadet described how Jackson would, quote, complain that one arm and one leg were heavier than the other. He would occasionally raise his arm straight up, as he said, to let the blood run back into his body, and so relieve the excessive weight, unquote. Jackson would continue this practice uh, years later, though during the war his men interpreted the raised arm as an indication that Jackson was in prayer, rather than as an effort to alleviate a perceived physical ailment. But eccentricity and unrefined social skills aside, Jackson made a generally favorable impression on the other cadets. Classmate Parmenas Turnley remembered, quote, While there were many who seemed to surpass him in intellect, in geniality, and good fellowship, there was no one of our class who more absolutely possessed the respect and confidence of all, unquote. He earned that respect and confidence not through social grace or dazzling intellect, but by overcoming the limitations of his background and lack of education through sheer determination and force of will. The star of the class of 1846, and a cadet who didn't need to work nearly so hard to keep his head above water, was George McClellan, the son of a well-known Philadelphia doctor. Prior to West Point, McClellan had already studied at the University of Pennsylvania. He was the president of the Dialectical Society, the second-ranking graduate, and the most socially popular of the class. He socialized less with fellow Yankees and more with the Southern aristocrats, such as his roommate A.P. Hill, himself the son of a prominent Virginia family. Jackson and McClellan, mirror opposites in so many ways, must have run into one another at West Point, but neither said much about the other's time at the school. Academically, Jackson started out ranked last in his class. After the first set of exams, 16 cadets were sent home due to failing scores, but Jackson barely squeaked through. All the extra work he was putting in was beginning to make up for the education he missed out on as a kid. After the spring exams, a full 50 cadets had already flunked out, but Jackson had raised his class rank to 51st. The second year fall exams brought his rank all the way up to 21st, and the increase was due in large part to his scores in math, which it had been his weakness a year earlier. By graduation, he had climbed all the way up to 17th out of the 59 cadets that made it all the way through. Jackson even received the fourth highest score in logic and the 11th highest score in natural philosophy, 
considered to be one of, if not the most difficult courses at the school, and a subject that he would later teach. Fellow cadet George Taylor summed up Jackson's West Point career like this, quote, He came here badly prepared, but was rising all the time, and if the course had been four years longer, he would have graduated at the head of the class. He never gave up on anything, unquote. Jackson graduated from West Point on June 30th, 1846, and the United States declared war on Mexico less than a month later, on July 22nd. Jackson was assigned to the 1st United States Artillery Regiment as a second lieutenant and joined Zachary Taylor in Monterey that fall. By the time the company arrived, Taylor had already captured the town, leading to a transfer to join Winfield Scott in his Veracruz campaign. Jackson was disappointed in having missed out on the action with Taylor. He said to his future brother-in-law, D.H. Hill, quote, I really envy you men who have been in action. We who have just arrived looked upon you as veterans. I should like to be in one battle, unquote. Hill described discussing with Jackson the intensity of being in battle. Hill said, quote, His face lighted up and his eyes sparkled as he spoke, and the shy, hesitating manner gave way to the frank enthusiasm of the soldier, unquote. At the Siege of Veracruz, Jackson commanded an artillery unit like he was already a veteran, prompting a former classmate to describe Jackson, quote, as calm in the midst of a hurricane of bullets as though we were on dress parade at West Point. Following the battle, he was cited for gallant and meritorious conduct and breveted to first lieutenant. He missed most of the action at Cerro Gordo, so at Mexico City, he put in for a transfer to the command of future Confederate General Prince John Magruder, who was known for always ending up in the midst of the heavy fighting. At Contreras, Magruder would describe Jackson as being conspicuous throughout the day. After he held his artillery position while being pounded by numerically superior Mexican artillery, and despite the death of the other artillery commander, which had prompted Jackson to assume command over his fallen comrades' guns so that firing could continue. These heroics earned Jackson a brevet promotion to captain, along with the permanent rank of first lieutenant, and the commendation of General David Twiggs for coolness and determination whilst under fire. At Chapultepec, he and one sergeant kept a single cannon firing throughout the battle, though they were up against eight Mexican artillery pieces positioned in the castle and had been ordered to withdraw. After the castle fell, Jackson limbered his guns at the front of an infantry charge on the San Cosme Gate, along with D.H. Hill and Bernard B. and the 40 men under their command. Jackson's artillery work allowed them to withstand a countercharge of 1,500 Mexican cavalry. By the end of the campaign, Jackson had been breveted to major and held the permanent rank of first lieutenant. Stories of his exploits in battle had spread throughout the army to the point that he was invited by Winfield Scott himself to attend a banquet in Mexico City. Jackson was stationed in Mexico for a little while after the war as part of the occupying force, and during his time there, he learned to speak Spanish and studied Catholicism with some of the local clergy. After the war, Jackson would be stationed at posts in Pennsylvania, New York, and Florida. It was while he was in New York that he was baptized in the Episcopal Church. Uh, Jackson hadn't been raised to be especially religious, but uh, when he committed to something, he always did it wholeheartedly. And so he would remain incredibly devout, even by the standards of 1800s America, throughout his life. In December of 1850, Jackson was transferred to Fort Meade in Florida. The fort's mission was to protect against hostile Seminole Indians, but in reality, the men really didn't have much to do. 
So life at Fort Meade was mind-numbingly dull. At that time, Florida only had a population of about 85,000, and there were only 57 men at Fort Meade. Tampa was a three-day march away, but then there were only 200 people there. Jackson's commanding officer was Captain William French, who was something of a meddlesome micromanager. He would frequently override Jackson's orders and publicly contradict and correct him. Jackson tended to have trouble with authority anyway, and he didn't get along with French at all. In February of 1851, he tried to get a transfer out of Fort Meade, but he was denied. He then sent a letter protesting French's command style up the chain of command and was rebuked by the supervising colonel in Tampa. Jackson's dogged perseverance had helped him at West Point, but it nearly blew up in his face at Fort Meade. Rather than just accepting that he didn't get along with French— and sucking it up until he could get out of Florida, Jackson's focus stayed on making things difficult for his superior officer, uh, maybe because there just wasn't anything else to do. His next move came in response to some rumors that French, who was married, had become romantically involved with a servant girl working on the base. Motivated by his deep dislike of French and his religious conviction as to the impropriety of adultery, Jackson conducted his own unsanctioned investigation. His inquiry included secret, lengthy depositions of enlisted men, uh, which obviously made the men very uncomfortable. Naturally, word got back to French, and he placed Jackson under arrest on charges of conduct unbecoming an officer. Not to be outdone, Jackson fired countercharges based on French's alleged affair and demanded a court of inquiry. French vigorously denied the whole thing, arguing that Jackson was using fabricated charges of adultery as a pretense for usurping command of the fort. But something about Jackson's charges just really got under French's skin, and he seems to have become convinced that the whole base was involved in a big conspiracy against him, with Jackson as the ringleader. So French drew up additional charges against almost all of the subordinate officers. All these charges and countercharges prompted a visit to Tampa by General David Twiggs. And you'll remember Jackson had served under Twiggs in Mexico, with the latter commending the former's coolness and determination under fire. The Georgian Twiggs was one of only four generals in the United States Army at the time, so this would be the equivalent of office squabbling at a small local branch office, getting out of hand to the point where corporate headquarters dispatches an executive board member to investigate. Twiggs wasn't at all impressed with any of the charges being thrown around. He thought the whole thing was nonsense, and a big waste of his and everyone else's time. He told both French and Jackson to basically cut it out and stop acting like middle schoolers. So Jackson got the hint, and he realized it was time to move on, and so he did completely drop it. But for one reason or another, French decided that he needed to appeal Twiggs, and he went another step up the chain of command to Winfield Scott which was as high up the chain of command as you could get, short of the Oval Office. And if you know who was occupying the Oval Office in 1851, then I am impressed because I had to look it up. The answer, by the way, is Millard Fillmore. So continuing back to our corporate analogy, after the big shot from Company HQ had told French and Jackson that the office backbiting needed to stop, uh, French essentially decided to take his complaints to the CEO. In his appeal to Scott, French filed even more charges, now against the base surgeon and an NCO. So 
you can imagine what happens when this hits Winfield Scott's desk, right? I mean, this is the second highest ranking officer, uh, not just currently in the Army, but in the history of the United States. And he's being asked to review what essentially amounts to a petty tiff between two lower ranking officers who are, are bored in the middle of nowhere in Florida with too much time on their hands. So Scott doesn't waste any time directing Twiggs to remove French from command because he is, quote, incapable of conducting the service harmoniously at a detached post. What did French think was going to happen, right? Now, Jackson, who I guess you could say ultimately won, he obviously demonstrated that he is not above getting in the mud, and he's quick to bring court-martial charges against anyone who rubs him the wrong way. And he has some real difficulty dealing with the overbearing superiors. Uh, He's also more than willing to stick his neck out when his sense of honor or decency has been offended. But at least, he did have the sense to let it go when a general told him to knock it off. Besides, he was moving on to other things anyway. That February, while at Fort Meade, Jackson received a letter from the superintendent of the Virginia Military Institute. The school was looking for a new professor of natural and experimental philosophy, along with an artillery instructor. And wouldn't it be cool if philosophy professors at modern colleges were expected to teach students how to fire cannons? But as we mentioned in the opening, natural and experimental philosophy was not what we think of as philosophy. It was a a hard science class, and it was considered one of the most difficult college courses. Jackson had scored well in the subject at West Point, And he had established his artillery credentials in Mexico. So on the recommendation of D.H. Hill, a professor at another Lexington institution, Washington College, uh, who'd go on to be a Confederate general and Jackson's brother-in-law, Jackson seemed like a good fit for the position. In April, VMI extended an offer, and Jackson began in July of 1851. Author S.C. Gwynn describes the appearance of the 27-year-old Jackson when he arrived on the VMI campus. Gwynn writes, quote, He weighed 170 pounds. He wore his medium brown hair short in the military style of the day and sported side whiskers that extended nearly to the bottom of his chin, another army affection. He had a wide forehead, a sharply defined aquiline nose, a small firm mouth, and strikingly transparent gray-blue eyes. Unquote. Gwynn also notes that the gigantic black boots that Jackson wore upon his arrival stood out like a sore thumb to the folks meeting Jackson for the first time. Several Lexingtonians remarked on the way Jackson wore his kepi hat uh, unusually forward um, to where it nearly covered his eyes, which was a practice Jackson would continue into the Civil War. In 1851, VMI had five professors and 151 students. Lexington was and is a small town, and Jackson stuck out. He was quiet, and like we mentioned in the opening, he tended to take everything literally, like Drax and Guardians of the Galaxy. Now, to his credit, he refused to participate in negative gossip, though he did admit that, quote, it would often give me real satisfaction, but this would be to disobey the divine precept, and I dare not do it. Jedediah Hotchkiss, who served as Jackson's topographical expert during the war, recalled, quote, I never knew a man more guarded in his speech in reference to others. I do not remember to have ever heard him say aught in derogation of anyone at any time, unquote. Now, his quietness also partly resulted from his refusal to say anything that wasn't true. And this included flattery or even polite compliments. Much 
but by no means all, of Jackson's eccentric behavior had an origin in his deep religious conviction. Jackson took his faith very seriously, so he made few exceptions and made no effort to mask his peculiar behavior in public. Jackson admirably focused his energies uh, outside the classroom on self-improvement. He was an avid gardener, uh, a lover of Shakespeare, and he taught himself how to speak Spanish, which he had begun in Mexico, and studied a lot of military history. And knowing all too well that he was a horrifically poor public speaker, he joined the local debate society. He was noticeably awkward when speaking, uh, often ending his speeches without reaching any natural conclusion, and allowing uncomfortable empty silences to hang in the air mid-speech. In a report on one night's debate session, the Lexington paper reported on the nervous speech of Major Jackson, with nervous in italics. But he kept at it, determined to get better, uh, which he somewhat did, but never to the point where you might say that he was anything like good at it. His poor public speaking was also manifested at church, which he attended religiously. Sorry about that. The pastor would call for prayer leaders, and Jackson, once again completely aware of his struggles, would answer the call. The pastor eventually stopped calling on him, hoping to spare Jackson the humiliation. But Jackson was having none of it. He told the pastor, quote, My comfort or discomfort is not the question. If it is my duty to lead in prayer, then I must persevere in it, till I learn to do it right. And I wish you to discard all considerations for my feelings, unquote. He was also known for falling asleep during the service, uh, almost every service. At school, Jackson was not a good teacher. He had an excellent memory, and he could learn the text by heart, but he could not explain it. VMI's superintendent, uh, Colonel Francis Smith, later wrote, quote, As a professor of natural and experimental philosophy, Major Jackson was not a success. He was a brave man, a conscientious man, and a good man, but he was no professor. Unquote. Uh, Jackson understood his shortcomings, but his disposition would not allow him to give up, so he gutted it out. He was, though, by all accounts, an excellent artillery instructor. In 1856, a group of alumni tried to get rid of Jackson. They argued that he did not have, quote, capacity adequate to the duties of the chair, unquote. The school's governing board took the complaints under consideration, but did not take any action. And when Jackson learned of the alumni effort, he demanded a formal investigation of all charges, but this was also denied. Now, despite his later well-earned reputation as a strict military disciplinarian, Jackson was unable to control his classroom. Cadets would play the normal types of, of juvenile pranks when Jackson's back was turned and disrespectfully imitate his orders. One particular cadet pushed Jackson too far, leading to Jackson's having him placed under arrest and the cadet's eventual expulsion from the school. The cadet, uh, by the name of Jim Walker, challenged Jackson to a duel and announced to anyone who would listen that he intended to murder his former professor if he ever saw him in public. Jim Walker would later serve in the Stonewall Brigade and receive battlefield promotions from Jackson all the way to Brigadier General. On Jackson's deathbed, he put Walker in charge of the brigade. Walker would say of Jackson after the war, quote, The cadets came to understand him and to appreciate his character for courage and justice, and to respect and love him for his kindly heart and noble soul, unquote. During his time in Lexington, Jackson married Ellie Junkin, the daughter of Washington College President 
Presbyterian minister, and classicist George Junkin in 1853. Jackson became acquainted with Ellie during visits to see her father, with whom Jackson uh, developed a father-son-like relationship, bonding over their shared love of theology. Where Jackson was introverted and guarded, Ellie was a fun-loving extrovert. She helped him to lighten up and would often playfully tease him about his eccentricities. Now, Ellie was very close to her older sister Maggie, a well-known writer and poet, later known as the Poetess of the South. Maggie was initially jealous of Ellie's interest in Jackson and tried to chase the suitor away, even convincing Ellie to break off the engagement at one point, uh, which absolutely broke Jackson's heart. D.H. Hill wrote of, of Jackson during the time, quote, I don't think I ever saw anyone suffer as much as he did during the two or three months of estrangement, unquote. Fortunately for Jackson, though, Maggie reflected on how selfish that she was being, and she withdrew her objections, writing to Ellie, quote, Instead of not liking the major because he does the same thing I do, i.e. believes you necessary to his happiness, I will try to make that a very reason for liking him better, unquote. Maggie would even accompany the couple on their honeymoon to Niagara Falls and came to be very close to Jackson. Now, the major, as Maggie and Ellie referred to Thomas Jackson, and his wife and sister-in-law all lived at George Junkin's house after the marriage. Junkin came to view Jackson as a son, and Jackson saw his father-in-law as a true father figure. In the coming years, Junkin would be strongly pro-union, even leaving Virginia for Pennsylvania after secession, and that was really difficult for Jackson. With his new family, Jackson had found a happy life, but sadly... It was not to last, as Ellie died in childbirth in October of 1854. And Jackson was utterly devastated. He visited the shared grave of his deceased wife and their stillborn child nearly every day, and spoke of how he longed to rejoin Ellie in heaven. Following Ellie's death, Jackson and Maggie became very close, each helping the other to overcome their shared grief. Soon Maggie, too, began to see the side of Jackson that he saved for only his dearest loved ones. She described him as, quote, sportive and rollicking and full of quips and pranks. His cheerfulness and, and abandon were beautiful to see. He was exceedingly fond of children, and he would play them all manner of tricks and amuse them endlessly with his Spanish baby talk, unquote. And the sister-in-law poet saw something else, too. In 1856, she noted that Jackson had, quote, the very stuff out of which to make a stirring hero, unquote. That summer, Jackson took a trip to Europe to help alleviate his grief. He had a passion for travel, and he took in as many sights as he could squeeze in. In his journal, he recorded his awe at the, quote, "...romantic lakes and mountains of Scotland, the imposing abbeys and cathedrals of England, the Rhine with its palisaded banks and luxuriant vineyards, the sublime scenery of Switzerland, the sculpture and painting of England," unquote. When he returned in October to restart his teaching career, the trip had done much to help him overcome his grief. In 1857, after a trip to North Carolina and a, a brief courtship, he remarried to Mary Anna Morrison. Jackson's second wife uh, shared some striking similarities to his first. Like Ellie, she was the daughter of a college professor and Presbyterian minister. Dr. Robert Hall Morrison had been the president of Davidson College in North Carolina. The Morrison family had multiple prominent figures in its history, including a former senator and vice presidential candidate. 
Anna's sister was married to D.H. Hill, with whom Jackson had grown close during their time in Lexington. Certainly, Jackson saw having his close friend Hill as a brother-in-law as a perk to marrying Anna. After the wedding, Anna moved to Lexington, and the couple purchased a brick house downtown. They were both happy with the match and settled into a quiet, loving marriage. Anna was now too able to appreciate Jackson's quirks and the playful side that he had saved for a select few. She wrote of her husband, quote, Those who knew General Jackson only as they saw him in public would have found it hard to believe that there could be such a transformation as he exhibited in his domestic life. He luxuriated in freedom and liberty of his home, and his buoyancy and joyousness of nature often ran into playfulness and abandon that would have been incredible to those who saw him only when he put on his official dignity, unquote. And although his teacher's salary was not all that high, Jackson began to accumulate a respectable amount of wealth through solid investments in real estate, the local bank, and a tannery. Of course, like most moderately wealthy Virginians of the time, a portion of Jackson's wealth came in the form of human property, though his relationship with his slaves was far from typical. Three of the slaves owned by Jackson came with Anna in the marriage. Jackson earned a reputation around town, and several others requested that he purchase them and allow them to work to purchase their freedom, which Jackson permitted. Another, Amy, asked Jackson to purchase her so that she would not be sold out of town. His reputation for kindness with Lexington's black community began in 1855, when he founded a Sunday school for slaves. He did so over the objections of the town's traditionalists, who viewed any education of blacks as unacceptable. The objections did not bother Jackson, who took the project very seriously, taking responsibility for every aspect of the school and paying all the bills. The church's pastor recalled, quote, He threw himself into this work with all his characteristic energy and wisdom, unquote. On one occasion, Jackson was confronted and advised by a few of the town's lawyers um, that the school that he had founded violated Virginia's law against educating slaves. Jackson, they said, was likely to be indicted by a grand jury. Jackson, though, had no intention of closing the school in response to the lawyers' veiled threats, and he let them know as much, and no indictment ever came. Jackson believed in treating slaves kindly, and he obviously saw no problem with educating blacks, but he was by no means an abolitionist. Jackson's view seems to have been that slavery was in the Bible and existed in the world as God created it, so it wasn't his place to object to and try to bring an end to the institution. There were other Christian zealots in the country, though, who thought otherwise. John Brown, for example, viewed bringing an end to slavery as a religious imperative and one that should be accomplished with violence, if necessary. When Brown's group of militant abolitionists were apprehended while attempting to capture the Federal Armory in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, Governor Henry Wise dispatched 1,500 Virginia militia to nearby Charlestown in response to rumors of a planned abolitionist rescue attempt. The militia included 85 VMI cadets and two howitzers under the command of Major Jackson. The rescue attempt never materialized, and Jackson and the cadets witnessed Brown's execution. In a descriptive letter to Anna, Jackson noted how Brown met his fate with apparent cheerfulness. In his letter, Jackson, uh, ever the romantic, included vivid descriptions of the execution itself and expressed genuine concern for the fate of Brown's eternal soul. He told Anna about how he had prayed for Brown's salvation during the hanging. 
The opposite reactions to Brown's death in the North versus the South expanded the divide that had matured into serious discussions about secession. To many in the North, Brown was a martyr. His methods were extreme, but his cause was just. Southerners interpreted that view as an implicit endorsement of murdering their brethren. The Richmond Whig wrote, quote, Thousands of men who a month ago scoffed at the idea of dissolution of the Union now hold the opinion that its days are numbered, unquote. Now, Jackson agreed that the southern states had the right to secede in theory, but he was adamantly opposed to secession in practice, and even more so to the war many were starting to predict. He told his pastor in early 1861, quote, It is painful to discover with what unconcern they speak of war and threaten it. They do not know its horrors. I have seen enough of it to make me look upon it as the sum of all evils, unquote. And Anna reported, quote, I have never heard any man express such an utter abhorrence for war. Sister-in-law Maggie remembered, His revulsion at scenes of horror, or even descriptions of them, was almost inconsistent in one who had lived the life of a soldier. Jackson formed a committee of Lexington citizens with the objective of preventing war, and he attempted to organize a countrywide day of prayer, with participants pleading for divine intervention to prevent the coming catastrophe. And that is what Jackson expected it would be. Throughout North and South, most were thinking that if it came to blows, it would only be a short affair, one or two battles at most. Jackson knew better. And so, knowing well the horrors of war, Jackson favored taking all measures possible to avoid it. But should that fail, every effort should be made to make it as short as possible. In early 1861, he declared, quote, I am in favor of making a thorough trial for peace, and if we fail in this, and the state is invaded, to defend it with terrific resistance, even to the point of taking no prisoners, unquote. And by taking no prisoners, Jackson is not speaking metaphorically, and he doesn't mean paroling captured soldiers or just releasing them after the battle ends. Remember, this is a very literal person we're talking about. Now, he was advocating, uh, even before the war had begun, raising the black flag, No quarter to be given. Kill them all. In Jackson's mind, that was the most humane way to conduct the war. Because if the South could show the North early on just how painful and destructive the war would be, perhaps peace would come sooner. Now, this line of thinking would eventually be put into practice by Union General William Tecumseh Sherman, uh, but not until later in the war. Jackson had already decided that if it came down to it, he would stick with Virginia. Like Robert E. Lee, Jackson's primary loyalty was to his home state. He, like Lee, referred to Virginia as his country. He saw the United States as more of a a voluntary coalition. Interestingly, though, the population where he grew up in Lewis County was mostly pro-Union. By June of 1863, Lewis County would be part of West Virginia. The Jackson family was split between Virginia and the Union, leading to, as we mentioned earlier, the unhappy falling out between Jackson and his sister, who had been the family member to whom he was closest. And probably his best friend, too. It makes you wonder, though, had Jackson returned home to Lewis County after West Point and his time in the Army, rather than settling in Lexington, would he have stayed with the Union? I tend to think he probably would have made the same decision, uh, because Jackson was very much an independently-minded person, who kept his own counsel and was pretty immune to peer pressure. Like Lewis County, there was significant pro-Union sentiment in the Shenandoah Valley. 
Not surprising given the historic political rivalry between Eastern and Western Virginia. But VMI was solidly pro-secession, which led to some friction between student body and the locals. On April 13, 1861, a group of VMI cadets were involved in a a, a drunken altercation with some pro-Union militia in Lexington. Colonel Francis Smith, along with Jackson, rushed downtown to rein in the cadets before any serious violence occurred. They hauled the cadets, and remember, these were mostly teenagers, uh, they hauled them back to campus, and Colonel Smith set them down and thoroughly berated them for acting like idiots. The cadets were still in a lather and began demanding that old Jack, the backward professor with well-known public speaking difficulties, be allowed to speak too. Jackson biographer S.C. Gwynn identifies this speech as the moment when Jackson's transformation into a military legend began. After informing the cadets that military men make short speeches, Jackson gave uh, a rousing oration, ending with an ominous instruction, quote, The time for war has not yet come, but it will come, and that soon. And when it does come, my advice is to draw the sword and throw away the scabbard, unquote. The cadets liked what they heard, erupting into shouts of, Hurrah for old Jack! Fifty years later, a former cadet and uh, also former Confederate officer described the scene, quote, The thrilling effect of those words is felt by the writer to this day. They touched the heart of every boy who heard them. And men now gray will tell of the enthusiastic cheers which drowned all further speeches, unquote. It seems Stonewall was beginning to come to the surface, emerging from the chrysalis that had taken the form of an awkward eccentric professor. Two days later, President Lincoln put out a call for 75,000 volunteers to join the Union Army in suppressing the Southern Rebellion. The 75,000 was meant to include 2,000 Virginians. Governor Letcher, who had up to that point been publicly anti-secession, responded to the call with a letter to Lincoln declaring that he would not send Virginians to fight other Southerners. Letcher concluded that in Lincoln's efforts to subjugate the southern states, he had chosen to inaugurate civil war. Instead of sending 2,000 militiamen to Washington, Letcher ordered the militia to seize the federal installations at Harper's Ferry in Norfolk. Things were happening fast, and two days after Lincoln's call, the Virginia legislature uh, resolved by a vote of 88 to 55 that the Commonwealth would leave the Union. Notably, most delegates from the Shenandoah Valley voted against secession. Many historians have concluded that had Lincoln not issued his call for a show of military force, Virginia would have probably remained in the Union, like Maryland. Of course, without that military force, the other southern states may have never returned. By April 21st, Jackson was leading the cadets east to Richmond to join with the Army of Virginia organizing there. He arrived dressed in his faded blue army uniform and the old cadet cap that he had been wearing since he joined the VMI faculty, and which he would continue to wear throughout most of the war. Jackson and the cadets were put to work training recruits. Men with any formal military experience were in short supply. And so the teenage cadets found themselves teaching the, in many cases, significantly older volunteers, many of whom were not too happy with that arrangement. There weren't enough trained officers to go around, so political leaders jockeyed for position, many receiving prestigious commissions uh, despite having no military service. Meanwhile, Jackson, whose reputation as a fighter in the U.S. Army was largely unknown to the Virginia politicians, 
stood on the sidelines waiting to be asked. As one observer recalled, quote, Jackson was very quiet and reticent, having little to say to anyone, unquote. Jackson's uh, later chief of staff, Robert Dabney, remembered, quote, he knew that the estimate formed of his powers by the major part of the people and the authorities was depreciatory, but he disdained to agitate or solicit for promotion, unquote. Eventually, he received an appointment as a major in Virginia's Corps of Topographical Engineers. It was a desk job at the same rank he had held in the pre-war army, while unqualified politicians were being commissioned as colonels and generals. Jackson was reluctant to plead his own case, but after a few days, an old army friend who knew Jackson's capabilities raised the waste of a valuable resource with the governor, and the situation was corrected. Jackson was appointed as a colonel of the Virginia Volunteers, and he received orders from R.E. Lee to assume command at Harper's Ferry a strategic point not just for the armory there, but also because of the B&O and C&O railroads running through the town. In addition to taking over for the militia officers who had been in charge at Harper's Ferry, Jackson was also tasked with using his family connections and knowledge of the locale to raise and organize volunteer companies from Western Virginia. At Harper's Ferry, Jackson commanded 2,500 inexperienced, undisciplined volunteers, most of whom were from the Shenandoah Valley. The local politicians serving as military officers bristled at losing their command to the apparently unimpressive Jackson. And a reporter on the scene was similarly unimpressed with the West Point graduates' credentials, noting, quote, The Old Dominion must be sadly deficient in military men if this is the best she can do. He is nothing like a commanding officer. The deposed officers left for home or for Richmond in a high state of indignation, unquote. Jackson's first task was to instill discipline, which he accomplished by harshly punishing insubordination. He organized the disjointed militia into regiments, with VMI cadets in command of each regiment. They drilled all day every day, beginning at 5 a.m., with training focused around marching and musketry. And all this training wasn't for nothing. It helped to develop in the men the everlasting stamina that Jackson would soon require of them. The volunteer soldiers resented the rigidity, the lack of sleep, and the loss of booze, but before long, Jackson was whipping them into shape. One soldier at Harper's Ferry remembered, quote, The presence of a mastermind was visible in the changed condition of the camp, unquote. Uh, John Imboden uh, recalled Jackson's demanding yet compassionate command style. Imboden writes, quote, He was a rigid disciplinarian, and yet as gentle and kind as a woman. He was the easiest man in our army to get along with pleasantly, so long as one did his duty, but as inexorable as fate in exacting the performance of it. Yet he would overlook serious faults if he saw they were the result of ignorance, and would instruct the offender in a kindly way. He was as courteous to the humblest private who sought an interview for any purpose as to the highest officer in his command. Nothing angered him so quickly as to see an officer wound the feelings of those under him by irony or sarcasm. Harper's Ferry sits in a horribly indefensible position, surrounded by heights on three sides, and Jackson considered the town likely to fall. So he sent the arms manufacturing equipment from the armory south to Richmond and redirected the locomotives in the town further south, where they could be more easily protected. While in Harper's Ferry, Jackson also purchased a small horse, which he named Fancy, for his wife. But Anna didn't get the horse. Instead, the horse would come to be known as Little Sorrel, and serve as Jackson's mount throughout the war. 
Now, Jackson was not a skilled horseman, like so many of the other Southern officers. Uh, Dabney Morey, one of the staff officers, noted how Jackson was, quote, very clumsy in his horsemanship and with his sword. And a Prussian observer by the name of Justice Scheibert reflected on Jackson, quote, he grew to suggest the scholar, not the soldier, moderate height, stooped and awkward of gait, no great rider, he brought little elegance to a brown that had degenerated into a bony nag, unquote. So certainly no equestrian, um, Jackson's talents laid in other areas. And his efforts in Harper's Ferry didn't go unnoticed. Lee sent a thank you note and demonstrated his confidence in Jackson by placing him in command over 8,000 men, along with cavalry under Jeb Stewart and Turner Ashby. The jocular Stewart was a friend of the Lee family from their shared West Point days, and soon he and Jackson became close friends as well. Many observers would note that Stewart was permitted to joke with Jackson in a way not permitted by anyone else. Later in the war, Stewart would even try to share his foppish fashion sense with Jackson by purchasing a flashy military uniform as a gift for Jackson, who was otherwise known to take little interest in his clothes. On May 6th, Jackson ordered the occupation of Maryland Heights, which looks down on Harper's Ferry from across the Potomac River. Jackson understandably viewed the occupation of the Heights as essential to protecting the town. The problem with this move, though, was that, as you probably guessed, Maryland Heights is in Maryland. Lee disapproved of the move and requested a withdrawal. Jackson was directed to assume a purely defensive posture, and Lee's concern was that uh, Maryland's state government might take offense of the occupation, as it was already protesting the presence of federal troops in the state. The Confederate government was still holding out hope that Maryland, which of course was a slave state and had strong ties to Virginia, would join the Confederacy. That was not to be, but thousands of individual Marylanders did join the Confederate Army, fighting alongside the Southerners, uh, many times against Maryland Unionists. Jackson disagreed with the political considerations, but he deferred to Lee, and Maryland Heights was given up. The much more aggressive approach Jackson favored was expressed in a letter to Governor Letcher. Jackson argued that the Virginia forces shouldn't be trying to win political points. They should be flying the black flag. No quarter for the Union invaders. Uh, Far from being concerned about offending a potential ally, Jackson advocated an early invasion of Maryland and not a polite occupation like Lee would eventually decide on, but total war designed to break the Yankee will. Capture Baltimore and burn it to the ground. And remember, Baltimore was the epicenter of pro-Confederate sentiment in Maryland, which Jackson very well knew. Again, in Jackson's ideas, we see foreshadowing of the military theories that Sherman would put into practice a few years later. On May 23rd, General Joseph Johnston arrived in Harper's Ferry to assume command. Johnston was the highest-ranking officer in the U.S. Army to join the secessionists. He had a high profile and was well-known and respected throughout the country. Nevertheless, upon Johnston's arrival, Jackson demanded documentation, demonstrating Johnston's right to take over the command before Jackson would relinquish it. Johnston's reaction was part frustration but part admiration for Jackson's attention to detail and his respect for protocol. After the paperwork was located, Johnston took command and immediately began making preparations to abandon Harper's Ferry, which Johnston viewed as indefensible. The evacuation began June 14th, with Jackson ordered to oversee the destruction of the railroad bridges into town. 
He hated to do it, but he obeyed. Jackson's opposition to the withdrawal was recorded in an earlier letter stating, quote, I am of the opinion that this place, meaning Harper's Ferry, should be defended with the spirit which actuated the defenders of Thermopylae, be the cost what it may, unquote. Jackson saw his first action of the war at Falling Waters in Berkeley County, uh, again now West Virginia, on July 2nd. He was leading a small recon force that ran into 3,000 Yankees. Jackson recognized the odds early on, and he conducted a disciplined withdrawal under fire, even capturing a few Union infantrymen along the way. Johnston was impressed with Jackson's ability to stay collected while under the pressure of combat, and so the full general recommended that Jackson be promoted to Brigadier without delay. As it turns out, another full general, R.E. Lee, had already eyed Jackson's talent, and he had issued an order giving Jackson the same promotion that Johnston now recommended, only the rank would be held within the newly minted Confederate Army. Along with this new rank, Jackson was given command over the 1st Virginia Brigade and its 2,300 men. So after the retreat from Harper's Ferry, the 1st Virginia was camped at Winchester, along with the rest of the army under Johnston's command. Like Lee would be known for later, Jackson chose to sleep outside, alongside the common soldiers, though he had been offered the comfort of local housing. The 1st Virginia continued daily drilling under Jackson's strict tutelage, and he molded the unit into a hard-nosed fighting force that they would soon become. One cautiously admiring soldier recorded that Jackson was, quote, considered rigid to the borders of tyranny by the men here. But the soldier also noted that he had won the men's confidence, unquote. 10,000 men total, including uh, Jackson's brigade, were under Johnston's command in Winchester until July 18th, when they started moving east to unite with PGT Beauregard's 20,000. After a one-day trip by railroad, they arrived at Manassas Junction, a strategically important railroad hub. Jackson's men were better trained than most of the rebels, or the Yankees for that matter, but they carried outdated smoothbore muskets, and they lacked anything resembling matching uniforms. Beauregard was facing off against Union General Irvin McDowell, um, who was in command of 35,000 uh, to the northeast. Beauregard had concocted a plan under which Johnston's men would hit McDowell's right flank before the two rebel forces fully combined. Johnston, though, who technically outranked Beauregard, didn't want to split up the force in the face of the enemy. And so instead, the uh, army was combined and organized into a roughly eight-mile-long line along a small creek called Bull Run. McDowell was reluctant to attack because he didn't think that his still untrained, undisciplined men were quite ready to fight. But uh, Lincoln saw things otherwise. The rebels were just as untrained, and the Union men were better equipped, so the president urged, if not forced, McDowell to go on the offensive. McDowell relented, and he came up with a plan to send 18,000 men secretly marching around the rebel left flank during the night of July 21st. At the same time, Beauregard was planning to send a large rebel force around the Union left. The simultaneous attacks, each on the other's left, might have resulted in a sort of joint pirouette, or in complete chaos, but Beauregard's orders were hopelessly confusing, and last-minute changes weren't communicated to everyone who needed to know. So McDowell got the jump on Beauregard, 
and the rebels were mostly still in place when McDowell's flanking force moved into position. The Union nocturnal movement went surprisingly well, and at around 9.30 the next morning, the large flanking force ran into a small rebel force under Bernard B. and Shanks Evans, securing the Confederate left at Matthew Hill. Despite the huge numerical disparity, the rebels managed to hold the position for a couple hours, uh, but the numbers eventually told, and B. and Evans began a withdrawal that was on the verge of becoming a rout. Fortunately for the rebels, though, help was on the way. Upon hearing that B. and Evans were under attack, Jackson marched his brigade to their relief, without orders. And there weren't much in the way of orders going out. Beauregard and Johnston had yet to realize that they were being flanked, and so they hadn't taken any steps to address the potential disaster. When Jackson arrived, he found B.'s men dangerously close to losing their position, which would have allowed the Federal flanking force to roll up the Confederate left. Uh, B., undoubtedly exhausted and tense, reportedly said to Jackson, General, they are driving us. To which Jackson is said to have responded, Sir, we will give them the bayonet. Jackson lined up his men in a small group of pine trees on the reverse slope of a hill where they were protected from Union artillery, but they themselves enjoyed a clear field of fire for their own artillery. By this time, Johnston and Beauregard had figured out uh, what was going on, and they reinforced Jackson while they frantically attempted to organize their lines to face the Union attack, uh, with Jackson's position now at the center. McDowell here did his adversaries uh, a huge favor by delaying the advance for two hours while he also reorganized. This delay allowed Beauregard to completely reposition the Confederate Army um, to meet the coming attack head-on. McDowell restarted the advance at around 2.30 with an artillery barrage. Jackson was prepared for them, and he answered with artillery of his own. One of his men described the general as standing, quote, in a shower of death as calmly as a farmer about his farm when the seasons are good, unquote. Several witnesses described the way Jackson would transform in battle, his face lighting up, and an intensity uh, coming to the surface that never displayed itself, except when in the midst of battle. McDowell launched assaults at Jackson's left, then his right, but Jackson's men threw them back. The rebel artillery from its protected position was also winning the duel against the superior Union guns, uh, which had been left vulnerable. Jackson, you'll remember, commanded artillery in Mexico and was an instructor of artillery at VMI. The positional advantage enjoyed by the rebels was no accident. Meanwhile, and this is a famous story, there's several versions of it, General B, in attempting to rally his men to rejoin the fight, and to come to Jackson's aid, as the 1st Virginia had just done for them, uh, B shouted to his men, quote, Yonder stands Jackson like a stone wall. Let us determine to die here, and we will conquer. Rally behind the Virginians. Or something along those lines, anyway. Uh, B didn't get a chance to tell historians exactly what he said, because he would die within an hour or so, and there are several different versions that were reported. After the battle, the Charleston Mercury reported the exchange between B and Jackson, and the story soon spread throughout the South and even into the North. Stonewall came to be the nickname applied to both Jackson himself and his brigade, 
uh, neither of which seemed to mind. And so was born one of the most famous and awesome, really, nicknames in American history. After being repulsed on the left and the right, and with his artillery being picked apart, McDowell ordered an attack directly into Jackson's center. When Jackson saw what he and his men were in for, he ordered them to, to wait until the Yankees were about 50 yards off, and then fire one round, um, and then conduct a bayonet charge while yelling like the Furies. McDowell's frontal assault was absolutely shredded by the rebel artillery, and the Yankees were vulnerable, like a prize fighter who had just missed with a haymaker. Jackson saw the potential weakness, and he ordered a counterattack, saying, We'll charge them now and drive them to Washington. They charged 300 yards, screaming like Jackson had instructed, capturing several artillery pieces and inventing another Civil War icon, the Rebel Yell. A Yankee counterattack recaptured the position momentarily, but by then, the men Johnston had redeployed to reinforce Jackson had arrived, swinging the momentum back to the Rebels. McDowell tried to turn the tide with a final flank attack on the Rebel left, but it was too late. The tired Union troops were burnt out. Thrown back again, they began scattering and retreating in disarray. Uh, McDowell saw the writing on the wall, and he tried to organize a disciplined withdrawal, but too many men panicked, and they were soon on the run, literally, back to Washington, ditching guns, ammo, and supplies along the way. Some of the northern politicians who had come out to the battlefield for a picnic began jeering the retreating soldiers, calling them cowards and that kind of thing. Um, but, of course, that didn't help any more than you would expect. Had this been later in the war, the Confederates could have driven directly into the chaos, pushing the retreating McDowell all the way back to Washington itself. But the rebels were just as disorganized as the Union troops, so a follow-up tack just wasn't in the cards. And they began celebrating the victory that many were announcing meant the war was already over. During the celebration, Jefferson Davis arrived. He had apparently received reports that the rebel army had been defeated and was now in retreat. So Davis was attempting to rally the men during their victory celebration. After a few bewildered looks, Jackson announced to Davis, We have whipped them. They ran like sheep. Give me 10,000 men and I will take Washington tomorrow. And we have no reason to believe that Jackson did not truly think that that was possible. But he did not receive the men to try. During the fighting, Jackson was shot through the hand. Uh, not a serious wound. It didn't even slow him down, really. But it did linger uh, a little bit and gave rise to a misperception about Jackson among the men. As James Longstreet explained it, quote, he had a habit of raising his right hand, riding or sitting, which some of his followers were wont to construe into invocation for divine aid. The fact is, he received a shot in that hand at first bull run, which left the hand under partial paralysis, and the circulation through it imperfect. To release the pressure and assist the circulation, he sometimes raised the arm. Unquote. The results of Manassas sent a shockwave through the north. The 2,700 Union casualties, which was very light by later standards, and the thorough defeat caused influential New York Tribune editor Horace Greeley to write to Lincoln in a public letter, quote, If it is best for the country and for mankind that we make peace with the rebels and on their terms, 
do not shrink even from that, unquote. Interestingly, though, the New York Times declared a Union victory, describing McDowell's army as, quote, more than conquerors, not only driving the enemy from their formidable positions, but seizing all their guns and equipment. Sumter is now fully avenged, unquote. So next time someone tells you that fake news is really starting to become a problem, remind them that it has been a problem for at least 150 years. Now, fortunately for the Union cause, most Northerners uh, did not react to Manassas the way that Greeley had. Lincoln called for an unprecedented one million volunteers, and his call was answered with enthusiasm. McDowell lost his job in favor of Jackson's former classmate, George McClellan, who, uh, fresh off some victories in what is now West Virginia, began organizing and training in and around Washington, the impressive army that would come to be the formidable Army of the Potomac. In the South, Beauregard received most of the credit for the victory, though both he and Johnston praised Jackson in their reports. Beauregard noted Jackson's, quote, high soldierly qualities and admirable conduct, unquote. And Johnston described him as an, quote, able, fearless soldier and sagacious commander, unquote. Jackson, of course, gave all the credit to God. He wrote to Anna about his brigade's role in the victory, but instructed her, quote, say nothing about it. Let others speak praise, not myself, unquote. Don't kid yourself, though. Jackson wanted some of that glory. He just, he, he just wasn't going to self-promote. When asked about uh, the ability to remain remarkably stoic during the chaos of battle, which he had amply demonstrated at Manassas, Jackson declared, quote, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but am always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. This is the way all men should live, for then all would be equally brave, unquote. And I think this quote provides a, a really good glimpse into Jackson's psyche and how his religious conviction impacted his effectiveness as a soldier. Uh, basically, he was so confident that God was in control that it would have been irrational for him to be afraid in battle. If it wasn't yet his time, he would obviously be fine. And if it was, well, that just means he gets to be with God. So still, nothing to worry about. Now, that's not to say that religious conviction alone was what made Jackson brave, because he demonstrated almost reckless courage under fire in Mexico, and that was before he had become so thoroughly devout. Even so, it at least partially explains how Jackson could remain relatively unfazed, even under the heaviest fire. After Manassas, things slowed down for a little while. McClellan engineered the Army of the Potomac, while the rebels remained largely complacent with their victory. Jackson, though, knew the war was far from over. One of his staff members recalled, quote, It does not appear that he was at all elated by the early successes of the Confederacy, nor did he concur in the opinion which so extensively prevailed in the fall of 1861 that the war would be a short one and our independence easily gained, unquote. Several generals, including Beauregard, Johnston, and Jackson, wanted to follow up the victory by reinforcing the Confederate army in Virginia and attacking North. But they were overruled by Jefferson Davis, who favored a defensive approach, still holding out hope for border state support. Davis viewed Jackson in particular as overly aggressive. 
even reckless. Jackson wasn't just looking to shed blood, though. His concern was that if the rebels waited to attack, they would soon be outnumbered by the massive army McClellan was building. He said to General G.W. Smith, quote, We ought to invade their country now and not wait for them to make the necessary preparations for them to invade ours, unquote. And so he put together a plan to capture Philadelphia and Baltimore and strike all the way across Pennsylvania to the Great Lakes, crippling northern trade and effectively cutting Washington off from the rest of the north. He would force the people of the north to understand what it will cost them to hold the south in the Union at the Bayonet's Point, unquote. Smith remembered that after he told Jackson that Davis had already quashed plans for an offensive, Jackson, quote, shook my hand warmly and said, I am very, very sorry. Without another word, he went slowly out to his horse, mounted very deliberately, and rode sadly away, unquote. In October, Jackson was again promoted, this time to Major General, and placed in command over the Valley District. He surrounded himself with friends from VMI and family members from in and around Lexington. His brother-in-law and business partner, serving as his chief of staff, John Preston, remembered Jackson at an otherwise boisterous staff meeting. The major general was, quote, grave as a signpost till something chances to overcome him. Then he breaks out into a laugh so awkward that it is manifest that he never laughed enough to learn how. He is a most simple-hearted man, unquote. Jackson would continue to advocate for offensive operations. In January 1862, he secured approval for an expedition into Union-occupied areas uh, in areas now known as the Eastern Panhandle of West Virginia. This winter excursion would demonstrate early on Jackson's propensity for pushing his soldiers to the absolute limit of their tolerance if he believed it would lead to positive results. During the march northwest from Winchester, his soldiers were utterly miserable, suffering from exposure in the 20-degree weather and the sleet and snow up in the mountains. Jackson pushed them hard, and he kept his plans secret, which was another practice that he would continue throughout his career, and was also something the junior officers found exceedingly frustrating. When one of his brigadiers failed to advance as quickly as Jackson wanted, Jackson sent him back to VMI on permanent leave. Anything less than maximum effort was completely unacceptable when serving under Jackson. By the time they reached their target in Romney, the Union garrison had already evacuated. Jackson wanted to pursue, but after the previous day's march, the men simply did not have anything left. With Romney secured, Jackson left a detachment under General William Loring to occupy the town and retreated to Winchester for winter quarters. Uh, General Loring was offended that Jackson had abandoned him, as he saw it, in an exposed, uncomfortable position in backwoods Romney, while Jackson himself returned to relatively cosmopolitan Winchester. Loring and a couple of other uh, politically connected generals, including uh, William Tolliver, penned a letter to Richmond asking that their brigades be removed from Jackson's command. They claimed that leaving them under Jackson would be suicidal and argued that the army was being destroyed under Jackson's poor management. Now, for anyone taking notes, Tolliver is spelled exactly like it sounds. T-A-L-I-A-F-E-R-R-O. The letter made it all the way up the chain of command to Jefferson Davis, 
with Jackson getting a copy along the way. Now, Jackson was perplexed. He viewed the campaign to Romney as a resounding success. The way he saw it, they had retaken several Virginia counties at the cost of only 35 casualties. Nonetheless, at the end of January, Secretary of War Judah Benjamin sent orders directly to Jackson stating, quote, Our news indicates that a move is being made to cut off General Loring's command. Order him back to Winchester immediately, unquote. So Jackson did not take kindly to Benjamin's order, though he promptly complied and acknowledged receipt uh, with a direct reply, quote, With such interference in my command, I cannot expect to be of much service in the field, unquote. Jackson went on to request uh, to be relieved of command and allowed to report back to VMI to continue his career as a teacher or to tender his resignation. Jackson's response went up the chain of command through Joseph Johnston per military protocol, which Benjamin had neglected to Johnston's consternation. Johnston tried to talk Jackson out of the resignation, and then he visited Jefferson Davis, Davis declared that he would not accept Jackson's resignation, effective officers being as hard to come by as they were. Virginia Governor Letcher sent Jackson a letter personally asking him to reconsider, and after two days' careful consideration, Jackson withdrew the resignation and brought charges against Loring for insubordination, which were supported by Johnston. So Judah Benjamin, who, who was a talented administrator, if not a, a military man, uh, notwithstanding the office he held at the time. He took the brunt of the criticism from the incident. The career officers, notably including Joseph Johnston, universally condemned the political interference in military matters and the breach of protocol. Benjamin, uh, who was the first Jew elected to the United States Senate when he represented Louisiana before the war, stoically agreed to accept the role of scapegoat throughout the war to keep the heat off of his friend Jeff Davis. Benjamin's life was uh, really pretty remarkable and, and will almost certainly uh, be the subject of a future episode. Overall, the Romney expedition was fairly inconsequential. After Loring was recalled, Union troops promptly reoccupied Romney. But the whole incident shows how, even fairly early in the war... Jackson would bristle in any interference from above. And it also showed that generals with demonstrated ability earned a great deal of clout in the army. Uh, as such, Jackson was usually able to maintain his independence. His brother-in-law, D.H. Hill, remembered the, the difficulties Jackson had when placed in a subordinate role. Hill remembered, quote, Jackson's genius never shone when he was under the command of another. It seemed to be shrouded or paralyzed. That was the keynote to his whole character. The hooded falcon cannot strike the quarry, unquote. Now, notwithstanding Jackson's uh, resistance to authority, there was a certain fool general from Virginia with whom Jackson would soon become well acquainted, uh, who seems to have truly appreciated Jackson's independence streak, and who, in turn, seems to have held Jackson's unconditional respect. The winter of 1861 to 1862 was a hard one. A combination of sickness and desertion brought the effective fighting force below 4,000. Though, interestingly, Jackson's perennial physical ailments subsided once the war started. It reminds you of how many animals, uh, like orcas come to mind, will have physical problems when held in captivity that they don't have in their natural environments. 
during the war, Jackson was in his element, and his health actually improved. In contrast to Jackson's depleted force, General Nathaniel Banks commanded 30,000 well-equipped bluecoats in opposition. Jackson asked for more men, but he was denied because there just weren't any to give. If he was going to get any reinforcements, he'd have to recruit his own. And manpower wasn't the only Confederate disadvantage. The rebel smoothbore muskets, with their shorter range, were inferior to the accurate rifled muskets carried by most Union soldiers. And Jackson didn't have enough of the old muskets to fully arm his men anyway. When he asked for additional arms, Richmond replied that he should rely on the bayonet. In response, Jackson submitted a request for 1,000 pikes to the War Department. Yeah, seriously, pikes. And the request was approved by R.E. Lee. Now, the pikes were never used, uh, in the field anyway, but the request itself, which Jackson made in all seriousness, shows not only the woefully insufficient resources held by the rebels, but also Jackson's aggressive mindset. For the remainder of the winter, Jackson lodged at the home of the Reverend James Graham. Graham got to know Jackson pretty well, and he provided an interesting insight into the the duality of Jackson's character. The Reverend wrote that he, quote, could not fail to see underneath his grave earnestness the brighter and more attractive elements of his nature, which even his habitual gravity could not always restrain from breaking forth. Sometimes, which the world would hardly suspect, in a keen sense of humor, but often in expressions of warm affection, unquote. As spring approached, Joseph Johnston directed Jackson to keep Banks busy, but to avoid getting into any full engagement. The idea was to prevent Banks from joining his force with McClellan's, easing the pressure on Richmond. Jackson would follow orders, but he wanted to do a little bit more. Specifically, he was set on holding Winchester, which was the logical first target for any Union advance into the Shenandoah Valley. So on March 11th, he held a council of war with his officers, and he proposed a surprise night attack on the Union force just north of the town. What he wanted to do was to, to drive Banks back north of the Potomac, pushing him back away from Winchester. Otherwise, the town would have to be abandoned. The officers, though, and this was much to Jackson's disappointment, unanimously rejected the plan. Instead, they voted to abandon Winchester to the Yankees. Now, Jackson reluctantly deferred to the vote, though he announced uh, soon after that it would be the last time he ever called a council of war. And he did stick to that. But for now, they would withdraw south, up the valley, closer to the supply base at Stanton. As for Winchester, it would change hands a whopping 72 times over the course of the war. The following week, Jackson began receiving reports from locals that Banks um, was doing exactly what Johnston wanted to avoid. He was moving east to combine with McClellan. In fact, McClellan had assigned two of Banks' three divisions to tend to the defense of Washington, while the Army of the Potomac went south for the Peninsula Campaign. The remaining division, which consisted of about 9,000, stayed behind to keep Jackson out of Winchester. Jackson moved quickly to prevent the movement. His army marched 23 miles north on the Valley Pike on March 22nd. The cavalry under Turner Ashby went ahead for recon and reported back to Jackson that Winchester was held by only four infantry regiments. 
Ashby, though, was mistaken, as Banks had left an entire division in Winchester under James Shields, a former Illinois senator who had once challenged Abraham Lincoln to a duel. By March 23rd, Jackson was five miles south of Winchester, near Kernstown. A force of 3,000 under Colonel Nathan Kimball moved south from Winchester to confront Ashby and came into contact with Jackson's force. So as the battle began, Kimball thought that he was only facing Ashby's cavalry, and Jackson thought Kimball's 3,000 were all the Union troops around Winchester. Jackson positioned his artillery on high ground, known as Sandy Ridge, overlooking the Union position. Kimball dispatched a brigade of 2,300 men to take out Jackson's artillery, while the Stonewall Brigade protected the artillery from behind, suitably, a stone wall. The fighting was fierce, and the rebels were significantly outnumbered, but the covered position allowed them to hold the ground. That is, until they began running out of ammunition. By that point, Jackson had realized that he was facing an entire division, but he held the superior ground, so he wanted to hold out until nightfall, and then strategically pull back in the dark. Upon learning that the brigade holding the wall was running low on ammo, he dispatched two reserve regiments to pick up the slack. But the brigadier general on the scene ordered a withdrawal before the reinforcements arrived. Jackson was livid and tried to run over and stop the men from pulling back, but a disorganized retreat had already begun, leading to the loss of a few hundred prisoners. The Confederates would end up camping five miles south, expecting the Union pursuit to continue the following day, which it did not. After the Battle of Kernstown, one of Jackson's men commented to the commanding officer, quote, General, it looks like you cut off more tobacco today than you could chew. Jackson disagreed with the assessment, replying, Oh, I think we did very well. And as it would turn out, Jackson was absolutely correct. You see, tactically, the Battle of Kernstown was one of Jackson's few defeats. His army had, after all, been forced to give up the field. But in terms of overall strategy, it can only be viewed as a tremendous success for the rebels. As a result of the stiff resistance that Jackson's men had put up in the face of a superior Union force, Banks greatly overestimated Jackson's numbers. And this overestimating was reinforced by some creative storytelling from rebel prisoners and General Shields' own estimate that Jackson commanded 11,000 men. When they sent the reports up the chain of command, the cautious McClellan was alarmed, and he viewed Jackson's presence in the valley uh, with a substantial army as a serious threat. And so he ordered all of Banks' army back to Winchester, siphoning off men from the attack on Richmond. Banks was delegated the unenviable task of dealing with Jackson, and to do so he was granted an independent command, the Department of the Shenandoah, consisting of 19,000 men whose mission was, as Little Mac put it, pushing Jackson hard and driving him well past Strasburg. Now, that's 19,000 men, with more to come, who could have been used to fight Lee and to take Richmond, who would instead be occupied chasing Jackson up and down the Shenandoah Valley. Now, keep in mind, Jackson, at that precise point, had only about 3,500 effective soldiers under his command. But, as time would tell, he was destined to make those numbers count many times over in his brilliant Valley Campaign, a campaign still studied by military strategists today, and one that we will look at further in part two. Mm-hmm. 
that'll bring an end to part one of our look at Stonewall Jackson. I hope you enjoyed it and that you'll tune in soon for part two. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at portraitsofblueandgray at gmail.com. Gray spelled with an E. We'd love to hear from you. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate and review us on iTunes or, heck, tell a friend. Thanks for listening now. We'll talk with you soon. If you would like to contact Portraits of Blue and Gray, you can reach us by email at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. Questions and comments are welcome from Yankees and Secesh alike. And remember, we always spell gray the old-fashioned way, G-R-E-Y. Visit the show's webpage at portraitsofblueandgray.podbeam.com. If you enjoyed the show and want to contribute financially, click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of the main page to visit our crowdfunding page. Or visit that page directly at patreon.podbeam.com slash blueandgray. All contributors are wholeheartedly appreciated and will be thanked by name in an upcoming episode, unless you ask us not to. Please rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever other app you used to find us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. time inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.